If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn to the book of Matthew chapter 16? Matthew chapter 16. As we continue in our series, a topical series, and there'll be uh, mixtures as last week of topical messages where we take various passages scattered throughout the Bible and uh, try to see what they're saying to us as a whole on the subject of the church. The formal uh, terminology is ecclesiology, and we get that, remember, from the word we learned last week, the Greek word ekklesia, which means the what? Assembly. Assembly. The church, the, the, the word church, comes from the Anglo-Saxon word that means the Lord's. The Lord's. So when you add those two ideas together, we have the assembly that belongs to the Lord, Jesus Christ. His assembled people. Matthew sixteen thirteen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he said to them, <clears throat> excuse me, but who do you say that I am? So you know that that title, that phrase, Son of Man, is referring to Jesus. Jesus is asking them, who do people say I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? Verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. It's the Messiah. It's the Greek word. The son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. Now listen to what he says. It's amazing. It's a remarkable statement. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh, why are you blessed? Why are you blessed, Simon? What, what about you is different than anybody else? What, what's, so, what's so blessed about Simon Barjona? He, he gives his own answer. For, what's another word for, for, for? Because, because, this is why you're blessed. <clears throat> for, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Revealed what? That Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're blessed because you have come to this conclusion that I, Jesus is saying, the Christ, the Messiah, who's promised to come, the Son of the living God. He says, you're blessed because, well, we know that it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed this to you because we could turn to passages like Corinthians chapter 2 where the Bible says that the the natural person does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. It's the same things, what Jesus is saying. So who has revealed it? He says, but my Father who is in heaven. The Father in heaven revealed to Simon Barjona that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Let that hit you. The Father did. Verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. Now he, he gives him this name. This little rock is what, is what the word means. And on this rock, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray together. Our heavenly and great Father, eternal, invisible, immortal God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the great I am, the one who was and is and is to come. We thank you and we praise you today for the purchased privilege of prayer. Lord, that we can come to your throne of grace to find help in time of need boldly and confidently, not because of anything that we have done, but because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so it's through his blood and righteousness that we bow our heads and hearts and close our eyes to give more concerted concentration to approach your throne of grace And ask you today to take the words of your holy book and seal them to our hearts. And just as you did for Simon Barjona, that, oh God, you would today seal the reality of the identity of Jesus into our hearts and lives. May we forever be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit who works to glorify and magnify Jesus and transform us from glory to glory into the same image. So God, we pray, come. Touch every heart, every life, every soul. Do a work in us individually and corporately for your glory, for the glory of Jesus. We pray in his name and amen. Amen. So you can see the title, Jesus, the builder of his church. It's very important that we understand that very simple phrase. Jesus, the builder of his church. You remember Jesus had a stepfather on earth. And what did he do as a vocation? It was his job. He was a carpenter. This young Jesus grew up, we don't know how long, knowing to one degree or another, depends on how long he was around. He seems to have passed away sometime during the life uh, of Jesus. But he would know that his earthly dad was a carpenter. And it's interesting to me that one of the analogies that we looked at in the scriptures that has a very prominent place in the Bible is the analogy of the building. That God is working, building a building, building a habitation of the Spirit. And you have to understand this in light of the reality that God is omnipresent. I understand that. And maybe a word would suffice to say something about it. You understand that the Bible teaches God is not to be contained in any one particular location. That God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere at the same time. In other words, there's not a hiding place. There's nowhere that you can go that he is not there. And yet at the same time, the Bible, not contradictory to that, also reveals that 
somehow, in a special, powerful way, intimate way, there is a manifestation of the reality of the indwelling of the Spirit of God in the church. It's what makes me furious with the connotations that are often attached to the church today. So fickle, so um, flippant and, 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 and casual as if this is not the weightiest of realities in all of the world. In all of the universe, there is no greater idea than God is. God is. And we are His people as His church. Well, let me take you on just a little brief journey through the first chapters of the book of Matthew. And I want us to think along this heading. The carpenter gathering his early supplies. The carpenter gathering his early supplies. Supplies. We have read from Matthew 16, this part of the story where Jesus says, Who do you say that I am to his disciples? You're the Christ. And he says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Now let's go back and see what is happening. I want to fly up really high and get a bird's eye view and say, Okay, what, what is going on in this story? This story. This is a story about Jesus of Nazareth and what he came and what and how he came and what he did. Of course, you know, we have the birth in the first few chapters of Jesus. Then we are introduced to John the Baptist and his ministry as he prepared the people for the coming of the Messiah. And what that means is he, he prepared the people with a proclamation, repent, repent. Well, the kingdom of heaven is coming, the kingdom is coming, and it's coming in the person of the King of Kings, Jesus, the Messiah. And so we have John the Baptist in the early parts of the book. Then the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, the beginning of his earthly ministry. And what does it say in summary that Jesus did with his ministry? He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God, calling for repentance and faith. That's, the, that's it in a nutshell. That's the concise statement of what Jesus did. Jesus came and he proclaimed the gospel, the kingdom of God, and called on every woman and man to repent and turn away from sin and to trust in him. He also did miracles of healings that we see in the early chapters and scattered throughout the the gospel. Then when we get to chapter Five, six, and seven, we find him as the master teacher in the Sermon on the Mount, that great teaching moment of Jesus about the kingdom. Then we see him in chapter eight as the demon commander. <laughs> Not that he's leading them in their devilishness, but that he commands them and they obey him. This man standing on the earth like I am today, flesh and bones. This Jesus of Nazareth commanded demons and they obeyed him. Chapter 9, we find him as the resurrector from the dead. He actually raises a girl from the dead. He is the restorer of sight. In chapter 9, we see him restoring the sight of a blind man. 
Then in chapter 9, and I want you to turn, you haven't been, I want you to turn to this one. We begin to see that this ministry proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can be a part of the kingdom of heaven. You can be a part of the kingdom of God. And to validate this authoritative word from God through the Son, we have all of this display of miracles. But in chapter 9, in verse 35, we begin to see the heart of this man, Jesus, who is saying that really the need of the hour is laborers. Laborers. Because there's a lot of work to be done. Now, if you were going to start a company, if you were going to start a company and you, 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 you had an idea of what you wanted to build and what you wanted to provide to the world, but you wouldn't start out with all of the resources probably that you would end up with 10 or 15 years down the road. And when we read the gospel account, we're reading the story of Jesus doing these early gatherings for this building of the church. So in chapter 9, verse 35, it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. And what is he proclaiming? And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then guess what he does in chapter 10? In chapter 10, he begins to assemble the disciples who were called the apostles. There were 12 of them. Look at it in verse 10, verse 1. So right after he talks about this great harvest of the world... How do I know it's the world? Because in Matthew 28, at the end of this gospel record, Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And in chapter 10, verse 1, he called his 12, the 12 disciples. He had more, but he called these 12 and he gave them authority. Pay attention to that. He gave them authority. How many? The 12. The 12 apostles were given authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And he gives the names. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And listen to this. These twelve Jesus sent out. The labors are few. Now I'm going to gather you, assemble you, give you authority, and send you out. Look at verse 7. What are they to do? Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff. For the laborer deserves his food. Whatever they give you, you take it and eat it. So he gives them authority, assembles the disciples, the apostles. 
That's important. These 12. Minus the one who died. Judas Iscariot who was replaced in Acts chapter 1. The kingdom then in chapter 13 is expounded upon. We have the kingdom parables in chapter 13. In chapter 14, John the Baptist is killed. And so you see the story from afar. In chapter 14, Jesus also comes to his disciples walking upon the water. So now we have someone who can command demons and heal all sickness and disease, raise the dead, has authoritative teaching and power like no other, is walking upon the water. In chapter 14, we also have the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 people were fed. 4,000 people were fed in the miracle in chapter 15. Signs then are demanded at the beginning of chapter 16. So if you've drifted off, we're getting close. Signs are demanded. (laughs) What? The man who did all that, do you want a sign? What's the problem here? One problem. They have a hardened heart. Captive to sin, they have a hardened heart. And the key, you already know what it is. I pointed it out to you when I read it to you. Blessed are you, why not them, Simon Barjona? Because the Father has revealed to you the reality of the truth. They were hardened in their sins. And they wanted a sign, it says. Look, if you will, in chapter 16. And the Pharisees, verse 1 And the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Judaism, came and they were to test him and asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The sign of Jonah, by the way, is the death of Christ who was in the grave for three days as Jonah was in the belly of the fish. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So what is the immediate context before our text? This is it. What we're reading right here. So this has to play a part in the story. When the disciples reached, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus aware of this said, oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but, very important, of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So that is the context that brings us up as the carpenter is gathering his early supplies. These disciples, these apostles. Now, 
Jumping into our text, let's think about the true identity of Jesus. This is the next heading. The true identity of Jesus in verse 13. He says that he is the son of man. Son of man. He gets that from the Old Testament scriptures. I'll give you one. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. This was Jesus' favorite self-designation for himself. The son of man. It was a title that had connotations attached to it because of the Old Testament prophecies. But if we look in verse 14, we understand that there are two groups of people in our text. There are all of the people out there, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which we are to beware of their teaching and not follow it. But then there's another class. Those, let's put them like this. Those who misunderstood and those who understood the, t- who, the true identity of Jesus. Look at verse 14. These are those who misunderstood. They said, well, John the Baptist, so-and-so might be this prophet. They did not know the true identity of Jesus. This was, of course, a representation of the popular messianic expectations that Israel held at the time that arose from the Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy 18 or Malachi chapter 4. But they missed the mark. They did not understand who he truly was. But some of them did. And if we look at verse 15 and following, we see that Simon, Peter, the apostle, the disciple, does understand. Who knew the truth of who Jesus, the Son of Man, is. And what this had, how this title, Son of Man, came to bear. Let's think about it in these terms. Number one, this revealed the identity and the ministry of the Messiah. Number one, he was the humble servant who came to forgive common sinners. Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah chapter 53, just to give you a reference point. Secondly, he was the suffering servant whose atoning death and resurrection will redeem his people. As we're going to see in just a moment, if you would go on to read in verse 21 of chapter 16, Jesus said, it says, From this time Jesus began to show his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be what? And be killed. And on the third day be raised. This would be the suffering servant who would die to purchase his people. And thirdly, he was the glorious king and judge who would return To establish God's kingdom on earth. They understood this. The Son of Man had these kind of connotations as we look back into Old Testament prophecy. Now, as we look at verse 16, we see that the apostle or Peter, Simon Peter, does understand the true identity of Jesus. It says, and, Je- and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are the Christ, he said, the Son of the living God. Representing the apostles, Peter spoke the foundational truth of the church. So in understanding the church, we need to understand that the foundational truth of the church is the declaration of the true identity of Jesus. The true identity of Jesus is at the heart of the foundational truths of the church. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then if you turn over to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 
and verses 19 to 22, you find the Apostle Paul saying this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you, talking to the church, are no longer strangers and aliens. You Gentiles who are not Jewish by ethnicity, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're not outsiders anymore, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the, guess what, household of God. Listen to what he says next, verse 20, Ephesians 2, 20, very important verse. Built, so this household of God is built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Listen to this wonderful imagery. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, so you as a church, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul says that the foundation of the church, the assembly of God, is the apostles and the prophets. What does he mean by that? He simply means what you would derive from putting these two passages together. When we look in Matthew 16, we find that there is a declaration of the true identity of Christ... And Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19, 2, 20, specifically built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone upon which it is all hinges. The apostles apostles and the prophets represent the teaching. The teaching. The authoritative. What did Jesus do in Matthew uh, chapter 10? He gave them what? He gave them authority. And if we go on and read the Gospel of John, he says in chapters 14, 15, and 16, this great uh, declaration about the Holy Spirit, that it is the Spirit of God who would teach the apostles what to say and what to teach. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we find that the church is steadfastly devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. It is the teaching of the truth that comes from Christ and that declares Christ to be God the Son who came in the flesh and died and arose from the grave and ascended to heaven and is soon to return to judge all people. So here we see the foundation of the house of God, the church, is the God-given understanding of the true identity of Christ. It is the right confession from the heart of who Jesus is, namely the God-man who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is upon this foundation, this foundation, listen, if you want to write this down, the foundation of apostolic truth, Christ builds his church. On the foundation of apostolic truth, which we have for us today contained in the New Testament Scriptures is the foundation upon which Jesus builds His church. That's so significant. Because if we lose the New Testament Scriptures, then we have 
lost the foundation upon which we can build. So to the degree that you and I and as a church are obedient and faithful to what we see in the New Testament Scriptures, to that degree we can be confident that what we are building is a New Testament church. But to whatever degree... We are not building based on the revelation of God in the scriptures, the apostolic teaching. To that degree, we have missed the mark. And we'll miss it until God recovers us, as he did in the Protestant Reformation from Roman Catholicism. Okay, let's turn another corner. So, we've talked about the carpenter gathering his early supplies. We've talked about the true identity. Now let's think about Jesus is the builder. So I'm going to play with words here. Jesus, emphasis word, is the builder. Jesus is the builder. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. So what I want us to do is just see the significance of the reality that Jesus is the builder. He is the builder. He said, I will build my church. I will build my church. Listen this morning. No other person is worthy. No other person is worthy. To bring about the consummation of this age than Jesus Christ. If, if you look in the book of Revelation chapter 5. I want you to listen to this scene from heaven. It's wonderful. Revelation 5.1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. God a scroll written within and on the back with seven seals. Then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. God has the revelation of the end of all things. Nobody can open it. Nobody in heaven could open it. No angels. Nobody on earth could open it. No one in Hades could open it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. I thought it was a lion. He is a lion. He's also a lamb who was slain and though it, as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the 
four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've been made and have been made a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads. And thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a picture. What a picture. How can people play games with the church? When that's true. Everybody. Every soul in heaven. Every angel. Every blood-bought, born-again child of the living God in heaven and earth and under the earth, they all bow and they all praise this one, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the builder. He is the builder. Jesus said, I will build my church. Let's let's focus on the reality of the fact that... um, He said, I, emphasis on the reality of who is doing the building. Um, And then he says, we'll build my church. It's a process of building, working to build something. The church is not a building, it's a people. But the Bible pictures this people sometimes like a tree that grows and sometimes like a building that is built. And the point is that the people has a builder. The builder is Christ, the son of the living God who builds the church. How does he do it? Look at our text in Matthew. It says, I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, on this apostolic teaching and true confession of who I am, I will build my church. And the gates of hell... It's the English translation of the Greek word Hades shall not prevail against it. So how is he going to build this church? He's going to do it by ripping down the gates that hold humans captive to sin and to death. To sin and to death. What are you held captive by today? Two things. Sin, which leads to death. And Jesus is the one who is the one who has the key and is the one who, I like the, the idea of ripping or kicking it down, but he, he has the keys, he says in Revelation. It's more biblical. I have the keys of death and hell. How about Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15? So we're thinking about how he builds it. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, likewise, 
partook of the same things. What? Flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of, the de- of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How about Romans chapter 7 verses 14 to 25? Listen to this. What are you held captive by? Death is one thing. Sin is another. For we know that the law of God is spiritual, Paul says. But I'm, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You have a nature of sin that you can't overcome. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. Now, he says, if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that in my inner being, that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am. Then he asks a question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have the victory over death. We have the victory over sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who's building it. He's building it by ripping down The gates that hold us captive. He does that as the church proclaims the gospel, the power of the Spirit. Well, let me let me close with one more statement about what Jesus says here in Matthew 16. Namely, this: Jesus is the owner of the church. He says, "I will build my church. I will build my church." He's the owner. You see, you and I can build something, and we can call it the church. But if Jesus is not building it, it's not the church. It can be a social club, a worship center, a ministry center, or whatever you want to call it. But if Jesus isn't building His church there, if He's not at work among that people or that group, then it doesn't matter what we call it. It is not the church of the living God. As Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In Ephesians 1.4, the Bible says that God chose us before the foundation of the world in Christ. It's His church. My church, He says. And not only us, but millions are scattered throughout the earth. John chapter 11, verse 52. In the book of Acts, chapter 18, 10, we see he says to the apostle, I have many people in that city. Don't you stop speaking. I have many people in that city. Jesus not only 
reveals that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world in Ephesians 1, 4. But we also find out that in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that we read last week, he purchased us with his own blood. And he makes us, as we read in Revelation 5, a kingdom and priest to God, and we will reign with him on the earth. They will be his church. He's the owner of it. It is not my church. It's not your church. It's Jesus' church. That's important. Many of the problems and the controversies and the divisions of local churches are because we so quickly fail to remember that it is His church. I will build my church. One final word. I will build my church. It's interesting to me in these days that so many people want to get involved in Christian ministry, but they don't like the church. I want to remind you of what Jesus said. Jesus said, I will build my what? Church. I will build my church. One pastor says, Jesus did not promise that he will build his school or that he will build his co-op, or build his medical clinic, or build his university, or build his social service agency, as good as those are. He promises with absolute authority, I will build my church. So what we're called to be a part of is the church. Now you can be a part of parachurch organizations and Social justice ministry, that's fine. We should be. He tells us to be. But we need to make sure that our supreme allegiance and dedication is directed toward one group, namely the church. Because that's where the authority is. Jesus says, I will build my church. If you're a part of that church, then you will see the authority of the almighty God at work. As we faithfully proclaim the good news of the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time and for your word. Indeed, a blessing and a privilege it is to open it, to hear our Lord speak to us through the holy scriptures that were given for our edification and learning so that we may be equipped for every good work. We can understand the significance of what it is to be a child of the living God, the significance of what it is to be a part of the church, the assembly that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and sealed with the Spirit of Christ. And, oh God, may these words have a profound and eternal effect upon each and every one of us in this room today. Help us to live in light of the reality that awaits us help us to live a life that is in submission to your lordship the one and the only one who is worthy the worthy one lord jesus the christ the son of the living god we pray in his name And amen.